The following audio is from Lifehouse Church. We hope you are blessed by this message and encourage you to connect with us on social media or lifehousechurch.org. If this life is all there is, then by all means, let's, let's just enjoy it as long as it lasts and let's take advantage of this temporary opportunity we have to be alive. But if this life is not all there is, and there is an eternal life, then to live short-sighted would not only be a mistake, but would be a tragedy. Let, Let me tell you a story to illustrate. Imagine you're going on a trip, and you're gonna spend one night at a hotel en route. But before you get to the hotel, you call ahead. You do research online, you you look at the hotel, you actually find a nice hotel with nice accommodations, but you decide that you don't really like the sheets they picked out, and you don't really like the bed that's in the room, and in fact, instead of the small bathroom that they have, you would like a luxury bathroom, and so rather than upgrading, you hire contractors to go ahead of you. And you have them go in and you have them begin to renovate this room. And so they rip out the bathroom and they put in a jacuzzi, they put in a large luxury size bath, you have them put in new sinks, uh, and, and they begin to renovate before you get there. And then you go online and you begin to pick out furniture that you have shipped to the hotel. And then you arrive as early as possible, as soon as you can check in, and you join in the renovations. You help the contractors finish putting up the, uh, the marble tile in the bathroom. You help them, uh, you help the furniture delivery, bring the furniture into the room, uh, and you have it, everything installed very nicely. You get the 2,000 count threads for the, for the Egyptian sheets, and you put them on your new luxury mattress and exhausted, you're going to fall into the bed after you've made the call to the front desk and asked for an early wake-up call. And you fall into your bed and you fall asleep. The phone rings early in the morning. You get up, you check out, and you continue on your trip. Now, I tell that story because any one of us, I mean, every person would hear that and think that is crazy. That's absurd. It's short-sighted, maybe even a giant waste. But it is illustrative of how you and I live our lives. That's right. If you only have one day to live, then you may as well live it up. You may as well make the most of that bedroom. You may as well renovate it and uh, bring in the best furniture so that you can have the best possible one night stay that you can afford. I would suggest if you only got one night left, don't waste it renovating a hotel room. (laughs) Maybe take an opportunity to say goodbye to those you love. But if you had one day to live, maybe that would make some sense. But if you're on a journey, then it would be absurd to put all of your resource into one night at one hotel. Our challenge is then that either we live this life as as a temporary life and we live it short-sighted or there's an afterlife. Many of us, however, because we approach life feeling like it's too short and so we live short-sighted, death is the ultimate enemy. It's the villain 
stealing from us our greatest commodity of time and life on earth. And so we do a tragic thing. We, we live our lives with a philosophy that is survive till you die. Live as long as possible and enjoy it while you've got it because it's not going to last. And if that's the case, and that's how most of us live, then what we typically do is we choose comfort, like renovating a hotel room, over a cause. We choose pleasure over purpose. And we choose the comfort, the comfort of mediocrity and the safety of mediocrity rather than living our lives based on a risky unknown, the unknown being the afterlife. And if life is temporary, then Macbeth's statement in Shakespeare's play makes perfect sense. Macbeth is saying this in the play written by Shakespeare. Out, out, brief candle. Life is but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard of no more. He said, life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. And if... Life has no meaning. If there's no design to life, if there's no purpose to life, if we just show up and we exist, then we die and there's nothing afterward, then this is an accurate assessment. Life has no value. We just exist and then we die. Or there is an afterlife. And if there's an afterlife, which means that when we die, we are resurrected to a new and different kind of life, then we have to consider issues and matters of faith, religion, and those who are faith leaders. And that would force us to come to the question about how we deal with the person of Jesus, because he is unique above all other faith leaders. Why do I say Jesus is unique? Because he talked about death life and the afterlife in the most unique unique way. He talked about the idea of the resurrection of life in the most profound and unique way. So regardless of your religious background, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of uh, your particular uh, bias toward the afterlife, you have to consider Jesus. And so the question then becomes, what do you do with the person of Jesus? Who, he, here is the issue, because Jesus is unique because he claimed to be God. Now that in and of itself is not necessarily unique. There are crazy people throughout history who have claimed to be God. But Jesus not only claimed to be God, because he was God, he said that he had a unique purpose. His purpose was to come to earth to take the consequence, the punishment that we deserve for our wrongdoing. So Jesus taught this, that you and I are bent and driven by this thing called sin. Sin, an inner instinct to, that pushes us away from God and toward our own desires, toward our own selfishness, toward living short-sighted. Jesus said that that sin separates us from God and leaves us on an e a course toward eternal judgment. And so he said, I am God and I have come from heaven to die, to give my life as the payment 
for your sin. And I'm gonna take the punishment of sin that is on every single person and I'm gonna put it on myself so that when I die, my life will be the ransom for your death or what you deserve. Then Jesus goes on and interestingly, he begins to predict his death. He gives very specific and clear details about the way he's gonna die not brought on by himself, meaning it's not gonna be suicide. He gives specific details about the, the pattern, the, the mechanism, the way he's going to die, who's gonna kill him, why they're going to kill him. And then he predicts his resurrection. And so if we're gonna talk about the afterlife, regardless of what religious perspective you come from, you have to come face to face with the person of Jesus who uniquely talked about death, resurrection, and his his part in the resurrection life. So now, when you deal with the person of Jesus, as C.S. Lewis says, you have to ask this question, was Jesus a liar? Was he a lunatic or was he Lord? And is he Lord? The way C.S. Lewis wrote it was this, a man, who merely, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be considered a great moral teacher. So C.S. Lewis is questioning and challenging the possibility of somebody saying, well, I like Jesus, he's a good man, a good moral teacher, but he was not God and he did not die and rise from the dead. Okay, here is a challenge. Anybody who said and did the things Jesus did but was not God, you cannot say he's just a good moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the very devil of hell. You must make a choice. Either this man, Jesus, was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. So was Jesus a liar? Did Jesus intentionally and knowingly lie, mislead, and deceive his followers and those in the crowd, trying to convince them to believe things that he knew were not true. And then you have to go down the road further. Would he continue with the charade even to the point where it led toward his crucifixion and cruel and barbaric death? And so when you, when you get to that question, then you're forced to, chow, to, to ask this or wrestle with this uh, possibility. And that is, uh, you, you'd have to ask this, this question. You must either accept or reject Jesus' death and his resurrection. You have to either accept or reject his claims about himself and whether or not he did die and rise from the dead. Philip Schaeff wrote it this way, how in the name of logic, common sense and experience could an imposter that is a, as a deceitful, selfish, depraved man have invented and consistently maintained from the beginning to end, the purest and noblest character known in history with the most perfect air of truth and reality how could he have convinced and successfully carried out a plan of unparalleled benefits, moral magnitude, and sublimity, 
and sacrificed his own life for it in the face of the strongest prejudices of his people and his age. Okay, what he's saying is this. If Jesus was a liar and he was an imposter, how did he do everything he did? How did he live such a profound and perfect life? How did he teach such incredible morality? How did he have such incredible impact all while being an imposter? And it forces us to come to terms with this discrepancy. And maybe as you're hearing this, you're saying, okay, fine. I'm willing to yield that Jesus wasn't a liar. Fine, then what's your other option? Then he was a lunatic. He was just crazy. But here is the challenge with that. If you read Jesus' teachings, if you look at the life of Jesus, first, is there any indication of any other uh, psychosis? Is there any other indication that he is a megalomaniac? And could someone who is a megalomaniac or suffering with severe psychosis have been as consistent and clear with his teaching as Jesus? Could someone who is suffering with severe delusions or psychosis have been as articulate, as willing to challenge the status quo, as willing to confront the cultural norms and offer an entirely new way of perceiving faith and justice and morality and approaching God without error and without contradiction. The reality is anybody who knows psychology, anybody who studies psychosis would say that is an absolute impossibility. The psychosis will leak out. It will create confusion. It will create clear patterns that will disrupt the logic and the, and the consistency of their teaching which then forces us to come to terms with Jesus as Lord. Now you might be quick to then discount, well, fine, if I believe that Jesus was not a liar, he was not a lunatic, then why do I have to accept that he was Lord? Because of the issue of Jesus' death and his resurrection, which is unique in and of itself above all other religions. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then Christianity is not like every other religion. It's a joke and it's empty. Those aren't my words. Those are the words of a man named Paul who is writing a letter to, the, to a church that he helped start in the city of Corinth. And, and in our Bibles, it's called 1 Corinthians, but back then it was just his first letter to the church in Corinth where he wrote this. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are pitied more than all men. And here is the thing. Jesus made it clear that his whole mission was not to teach not to offer good ideas, but to die and rise again. So if we look at Jesus as not a liar, not as a lunatic, then we have to come face to face with the possibility that he is Lord. And he said that his death and his resurrection were central. Paul confirms this and says, without the resurrection of Jesus, then Christianity is empty and is a joke. But if Jesus rose from the dead, then Christianity is not only true, but it is only true. So what do, we, what do we know about Jesus' death and his resurrection? Well, first, this, 
that Jesus was deliberate in predicting and prophesying the specific details about his death. Let's jump to Matthew chapter 20, verse 18 through 19, a book, the gospel according to Matthew, written by one of Jesus' friends and followers. And you might hear that and go, well, that makes sense that one of Jesus' friends and followers would uh, offer an eyewitness account, but skew the details. Well, that would make sense until you know that Matthew didn't start out as a follower of Jesus, started out as a loyalist to the Roman Empire, was invited to follow Jesus, and then later after Jesus' death and resurrection, this guy Matthew became a missionary, traveled through Persia, and and it's said that he died in uh, Ethiopia, murdered as a missionary telling people about Jesus. Here is his account of uh, what Jesus taught about his death. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 18, we are going to Jerusalem, Jesus said, and the son of man will be betrayed, referring to himself, to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. Jesus is referring to himself and he begins to give very specific details. This is where I'm gonna go. This is what's gonna happen. This is who's gonna accuse me. This is what, who's gonna condemn me. They're gonna hand me over to the Romans. The Romans are gonna mock me, flog me, and crucify me. Now look, here's the deal. Anybody who just predicts their death, I might have a little bit of a question mark about. But if you predict your death with incredible specificity and clear details and you're right and it happens and you predict your resurrection, you've got my attention. And that's my point. That's what I want you to notice here is Jesus is very specific. But what's interesting is not only is Jesus specific in predicting the details about his death, and then we'll say also his resurrection, but his predictions are in alignment with ancient writings. There are 48 ancient prophecies, meaning other writers who were looking ahead because they were all looking ahead to the coming Messiah. This story of of God becoming one of us who is gonna rescue us from our sin has been long foretold. And so all these different authors over hundreds of years who were all looking ahead, they were making prophecies, meaning prompted by God, saying this is what is going to happen. There are 48 different unique prophecies about the life, death, and resurrection of the coming Messiah. Jesus fulfills all 48 precisely. Some of those details are prophecies about where he would be born, where his family would move. There are other prophecies about the way he would die. He would be hung on a tree. He would be pierced. Um, He would be mocked. He would be spit on. Other prophecies that he would rise from the dead. So you could ask the question, if these happen just by chance, what are the odds? Well, the odds are mathematically impossible that somebody would just randomly fulfill all of these ancient prophecies. All right, so then ask the question about this. What if Jesus read all these ancient manuscripts and then he made his best attempt to fulfill all 48 of them? Well, that would be possible except that you don't get to predict the place of your birth. You don't get to to choose whether your mom was a virgin when she gave birth to you. That's impossible. 
You don't get to choose that your mom and dad, when you're a tiny little baby, pack up and move to Egypt. And then they come back from Egypt and move to this specific town. All specific prophecies foretold 700, 800 years before the life of Jesus. And Jesus fulfills all 48 of these very specific details about his life, death, and his resurrection. Okay, what does this mean? What does this tell us? What it means is this, our hope, our confidence, when we approach how we live our lives, it's not necessarily anchored in the fact that Jesus died. His death is important, but his death is only important because he not only died, but he rose again. Our hope is in the fact that Jesus died and rose again. How does this change the way we live? If Jesus died and rose again, then you and I can live victoriously. In fact, I would encourage you to take a moment, write that down. Maybe put that in a tweet or put that in a text or put that on Facebook and put that in all caps. This is the time that you can shout, I can live victoriously. Why? Because Jesus not only died, but because he rose again. What it means is that life doesn't end in death. Death ends in life. The end of your story is not the tragedy of death stealing the precious commodity of your time and existence on earth. The end of your story is that death becomes a gateway to the afterlife and the resurrected life through Jesus Christ. Now, we've got to look at the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus in order to really see how this applies to our life. So let me go back and let me offer a few more details. When Jesus was preparing to die, he offered very specific details about his death. Then he predicted that he would rise from the dead. This was not done in private or in quiet. People broadly knew that Jesus was predicting his resurrection. So when they crucified him, significant precautions were taken in his burial to assure that his followers would not steal his body and fabricate his resurrection. The Roman guard from the Roman Empire took a specific precaution to surround the tomb where Jesus was buried. They put a seal from the empire on the tomb, meaning it would be illegal for anyone to open this tomb without proper Roman permission that there was several precautions taken to assure that Jesus could not, there was no way to fabricate his resurrection, which is really incredible when you go and you actually read the story written by Matthew of the account of Jesus' resurrection. So we're gonna turn to just Matthew chapter 28, which is one of the four accounts, meaning the Bible has four gospel records, the, the story of the life and teachings of Jesus. In this record, uh, of these four different authors, they all, every one of them, offer a unique eyewitness lens into the death resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I'm just gonna give you one of them from Matthew chapter 28. It says this, after the Sabbath at the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going, uh, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were like were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, 
Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, he has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then going quickly, then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. And they came to him, they clasped his feet, and they worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. The reason I read that whole entire account to you is this is the most significant moment in all of human history. This moment, if it's false, then it is the cruelest joke and we live a joke. But if it's true, then it is the most significant moment in all of history. It is the most significant moment in spiritual history, in, in cosmic history. It is the most significant moment. Why? Because if God came to earth as a man, if he took our sin, our shame, our guilt, our death, our eternal judgment on himself, and he died in our place, and then he rose from the dead, then we can live victoriously. Then we can receive forgiveness for our sins. Then we can be in right relationship with God. Then what, what we read in the Bible is true and it can change our life. Here's what's interesting. The reaction of the people around Jesus is exactly the way you'd imagine it to be if the story is true. The women are shocked they didn't expect it. The disciples doubted. They all doubted the testimony and the account of the Marys that returned and said, Jesus is risen. They said, no, he's not. And they went running to the tomb to find his body. Thomas, one of the disciples said, I am not going to believe that Jesus rose from the dead unless I can touch his hands where they put the nails, unless I can see his side where they pierced him with a spear. Thomas reacted just like you and I would react. The disciples doubted just like you and I doubt. So not only was there doubt, but then there was cover-up. The political leaders and the religious leaders of the time, they reacted just like we would expect that they would react. They immediately covered it up. They paid the soldiers that had fought, that were awestruck by the angels who, who were unable to move. They paid them to tell a lie where normally in the Roman Empire, they would, have they would have killed a soldier for dereliction of duty, for falling asleep on the job. They did not put these men to death, but they paid them to tell a lie, and the lie was this. His followers overpowered us, stole his body. We fell asleep. His disciples came, they stole his body, and we didn't know what happened. Interestingly, there's this cover-up by the Jews and the Romans to lie about the story of Jesus. So we're in a similar spot. We can, like the disciples, doubt that Jesus actually rose from the dead. We can say, well, I don't think it's true, and we can call it a lie. So C.S. Lewis says, you can say he's a liar. You can say he's crazy, and it was just a conspiracy, and the disciples came and they stole his body. 
And, and you, can, you can try to cover up the historical account of the life of Jesus, or you have to come face to face with Jesus as Lord and how he changes your life, which is actually the very challenge to the possibility of him being crazy. Maybe you might think that all of the accounts of the authors in the Bible, they're crazy. The women who went to the tomb, they're crazy. They're all having this shared delusion or they're sharing in a lie. So let me, let me apply a similar litmus test to them. Most of them, nearly all of them went to their death. Some of them, anonymous deaths. Certainly nearly all of them, cruel and brutal deaths, beaten, crucified, stabbed, cut in pieces, none of them gaining the fame or the prestige or the finances that you would imagine someone would lie to get. So if, if you see men who are otherwise cowards, otherwise in hiding, who become incredibly bold and go around the world telling the message of Jesus who died and rose again, then you have to confront the possibility that maybe the reason these men were so radically changed is what they're saying is true. And so if what they're saying is true, then we can doubt it they doubted it. You could try to cover it up and call it a conspiracy, or you can be transformed like the disciples and the followers of Jesus were transformed because they came face to face with the reality that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And if and when you come to that place where you're willing to believe in Jesus as not only the son of God who died and who rose again, but if you can come to that place, then it begins to change your life and your outlook. Then you shift from living a life that is short-sighted only for the temporary and only for your own happiness, and you begin to live victoriously. How? You live victoriously over sin. Because now you know God came to earth, gave his life as the sacrifice for sin, took our payment, our, meaning our punishment on himself, his death, the payment for our sins. And when you know that Jesus died on a cross for you, then you are willing to accept God's forgiveness. He did all of this to forgive you of sin. You are no longer carrying the guilt and the shame that you once carried. You are forgiven and given new life. If you will believe in Jesus by faith, not just in his death, but in the wonder of his resurrection, you are forgiven. You are victorious over the sin, the, the, the pain of the past, the regrets, the shame, the guilt, the mistakes, the failures, all of the mess that you've brought to this moment. You can know for certain you're forgiven. You have victory over sin because Jesus rose from the dead. And the next thing is you live victorious as sons. And I was specific about saying as sons because in ancient times, the son in the family was the one who got the inheritance. He was the one who got the authority of the family. He got the name of the family. And when you believe in Jesus by faith, you become a child of God. God's spirit enters into your spirit. Here, here's what we know. Because Jesus rose from the dead, then later he ascended into heaven. He said, I'm gonna give you my spirit. When we believe in Jesus by faith, we are forgiven of our sins. Shame and guilt is removed, but God's spirit enters into our spirit. It's his spirit that gives our spirit new life. And when we receive this new life, 
We have the eternal living spirit of God in us that gives us eternal life. Now, because God's spirit is in us, we live as children of God. We're adopted into his family and we're promised the inheritance of heaven. We're given the authority of heaven and we're called children of God. We're loved by God and you receive all of the promise that an ancient son in a family would have been given. So whether you're a male or female, you're a son or a daughter, I want you to know that you get all of the benefits of being a child of God because Jesus rose from the dead and you can live victorious. And then finally, you live victorious since we are secure. If you believe that this life is all there is, you go through life insecure, intimidated, either a coward or crazy, just doing reckless things because who cares? This is all life has to offer. But if Jesus died and rose from the dead, then you and I can live victorious because we are secure in the love of God. I mentioned to you the apostle Paul who wrote these different letters. He wrote a treatise to the church in Rome but what I mean by that is this long letter outlining the specific details of what we believe as Christians. And in it, he offers the implication of what it means to believe in Jesus Christ in his death and his resurrection. And in Romans chapter eight, verse 35 and 37, he says this, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Is there anything Anything in this life or the life to come, is there anything in the physical or in the eternal, is there anything in our minds or our emotions that could ever separate us from the love of God? If Jesus died and he rose from the dead, then there, what he's saying is there's nothing that can separate us. In fact, that's what he continues and says. He goes, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. There's no way you are victorious because you live and love Jesus and his love is alive in you. Therefore you are secure in the love of God. Stop going through life feeling like you're hanging on by a thread. Stop going through life just living for the moment. Stop renovating the hotel room for a one night stay. Stop living your life as if everything's about to fall apart. Stop living and running scared. Start living secure in the love of Jesus, knowing I am forgiven. I have been adopted into the family of God. My life has purpose. My life has destiny and my future is secure. I'm not only living in this life, but I have the promise of eternal life. Some of you are not living like that. In fact, I would challenge you that nearly all of us are not living like that. But we can and we should. And I want to invite you to live like that. In fact, if you're here and for the first time you're saying, yes, I believe that Jesus died and he rose from the dead and I am asking God's spirit to come into my spirit, then here's what we believe that, that if that's where you're at, then God wants to raise you to new life. In fact, that's the phrase we use. You are raised to life. And whether you're watching with us online, whether you're in one of our services watching this via video right now, thank you. Thank you for being willing to let me speak to you through video. I wanna encourage you to respond right now and say, I want to be raised to life through faith in Jesus. And if that's where you're at, 
I would encourage you to take a moment. If you're, with, if you're in one of our services and you're watching this via video, I wanna encourage you to raise your hand right now and say, that's me. That's where I'm at. I am making that decision right now. I, I realize m- maybe you're feeling a little intimidated. Hey, enough. God has given you new life. Raise your hand and say, yes, that's me. And for those of you that are raising your hand or if you're online with us, you let one of our pastors online know, just make a comment in the comment section. I wanna pray with you right now. Would you pray with me? Dear Jesus, thank you that you came to earth, you died on a cross, you rose again, and you have given us new life. You have given us victory, and you've invited us to live victorious through faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you that you forgive sin. Thank you that you give us purpose. Help us not to live for the moment, but to live for eternity. Would you so fill our lives right in this moment, God, that we would transform how we live. We surrender to you right now. We believe in you by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Lifehouse Church, located in Hagerstown, Maryland. We believe that through Christ, life change happens here. So we invite you to connect with us further by visiting lifehousechurch.org.